everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we are going to be thinking and chatting to the amazing uh, Fiona, uh, who is a veterinary nurse who currently works uh, at Hills uh, Pet Nutrition. Fiona has had a really long and, and varied career um, within uh, the veterinary profession. Um, and it's just a joy to speak to her about her uh, perspectives on so many different things. Um, she is not only uh, an amazing nurse, extremely knowledgeable, um, she's also pretty funny too. In our clinical segment this week, we're going to start uh, a bit of a discussion about the urinary tract. Um, and we're starting a discussion all things urolith and just talking about some of the basic principles uh, of managing cases of urolithiasis in dogs and cats. Just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I'm one of the founders of ETX and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine. And I'm joined, as always, as ever, uh, by my friend in real life and in podcasting, Karen. Okay, well, listen, Fiona, Fiona, thanks so much for um, coming on to the podcast today. We really appreciate you joining us. I wondered if we could start um, just by you kind of introducing yourself. It's always interesting to know kind of where people started out and how you've kind of ended up, um, you know, going down the career road that you've gone down uh, today. Okay, so so currently um, I am the nurse programme coordinator at Hills Pet Nutrition, um, and this is a role that I've been doing for, for a number of years now. So I, I you know, kind of look after all things n- nursery, if you like, um, at Hills. Mm-hmm. But I did start off um, as a veterinary nurse myself. So um, I qualified as a veterinary nurse way back in ooh, 1989. Um, right. So I'm sure most people listening to this podcast weren't even so much because they're <laughs> twinkling their parents' eyes. <laughs> parents probably hadn't been born either. Um, way back then, um, and um, I worked in um, in practice as a nurse for about thirteen years, um, and you know, I, a, a job that I I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I really did. And in fact, the only reason I I decided to leave nursing was well, a couple of things really. One was because um, I had a lot of problems with my back, um, and mm. I still do, and I just you know was having having trouble lugging food around and what have you, and lifting heavy dogs and all those kind of things um, that so many nurses struggle with. Um, and I had a real interest in nutrition and I did my first uh, qualification in nutrition in 1991. And then I, I, I saw a job advertised um, in the year 2000 to go and work solely in the field of nutritional sales. Um, uh, so that's what I did. I did. I did teach for a year as well. I lectured at the West Sussex College of Agriculture or Brinsbury. People tend to know it by two different names. I did teach there for about a year at the same time as nursing. Uh, prior to um to moving into nutritional sales but um yeah so I've been actually doing that now for a lot longer than I was was a veterinary nurse wow so there's a few things I don't there's a few things there so first of all I don't want to bring um date of qualification into it to highlight age or anything (laughs) like that but I think what honestly though genuinely having you know speaking to you saying you know I've qualified in um 1989 we actually we we spoke to another vet nurse Haley Walters who you know she kind of joked about the fact that she was one of those nurses that did the little green book thing whatever that was (laughs) (laughs) so so we I remember we had that yeah that I was like and she she was like I'm one I'm one of those nurses you know that did that thing that's now not in existence or whatever what just out of she genuine interest what I mean you must have seen the profession change dramatically 
in that time. I don't know if there's anything that kind of really, or a couple of things that kind of, things that stand out as far as sort of changes within the nursing profession over over your sort of um, time in the profession. Well, uh, I guess one of the main things that has changed has been that there's a lot more legislation around, um, you know, what nurses are, are allowed to do or not allowed to do in practice. And, and, and rightly so, because it was always quite a grey area about, you know, what we are allowed to do and what we weren't allowed to do. Um, and, I, and it's also great that there's now an opportunity for people to, you know, further their qualifications if they want to. So so when I did my my um, certificate in spinal nutrition, there, there wasn't really uh, an opportunity for me to to develop my career by doing any other qualification at that time they just they just weren't available um you know fortunately for me nutrition was the thing I was really interested in and there was that but um so I guess it, in that respect things have changed and, and I definitely feel there's a um you know something that's perhaps less tangible though is the fact that there's a much more acknowledgement I think now of, of nurses and, and the importance of them and and what they do and and, and you know, I'm delighted to see that nurses are finally getting you know the respect that they they deserve because they are such a key component of of, of any practice you know every, every bit as important as every other person that works in that practice and I think finally we seem to be realizing that which is wonderful mm -hmm. and I think yeah and I think we we definitely feel that very much uh, through the conversations we're having particularly through the podcast is and and just how you know how empowered nurses feel now to do their job and to have a voice for um themselves the profession their patients it's so it, and it's it's amazing to see and it, it really like you say is so uh, kind of valuable one of the things that you also said there which i also think is 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 a sort of common theme you were saying there look there's there there was a physical element to to my decision making to maybe not do clinical nursing anymore and i think that's something that definitely people do struggle with is that it you know regardless of what kind of job you're doing in practice it is a very physical job and that does seem to be uh, or become a, a barrier for some people yeah it, yeah definitely and I and I meet a lot of nurses who um who, who had you know back problems uh, you know like, like I didn't end up having to leave the profession and um yeah it, it, it's it's a real challenge and uh you know and, and, and one that I still have to deal with I've still got a really bad back as a result of nursing um yeah. <laughs> uh, yes a, la a lasting <laughs> reminder yeah. I know I know that and, the, that and the huge amount of weight I gained as a result of nursing because I wasn't on my feet all day I <laughs> with a bottom firmly planted in a, in a car seat or, a, or an office seat so um yeah I'm definitely uh, lost a lot of the, the physical moving around that I used to do yeah so I think one of the major sort of uh, topics, uh, you know, profession wide is very much to do with the diversification within the profession where people are, vets and nurses are making the decision to take on roles that are not, um, uh, you know, that kind of purist clinical practice role anymore. And obviously you've, um, you know, made the decision to do that um, with your role um, at Hills or your with your interest in nutrition. Why was nutrition a particular point of interest for you why why did you find that so um interesting I think one reason was probably because and I think this is probably still true today to some extent is that actually vets don't get much training in nutrition during their their time at university so in fact they you know they, they come into practice and there's a whole wealth now I mean many more diets there were now than there were when when I was nursing um that are there to really help manage these diseases and um 
and actually so many vets really really don't know where to start with this nutrition or they you know they're not or they, or they don't have time to, you know you know in a, in a very short consultation time and just talking about all the medical aspects of dealing with an animal's um, problems takes up the whole of that time and actually you know having a, a nurse that they can they can lean upon and you know and that's why that's one of the reasons why I love nutrition so much because you know I worked with a vet who would who would refer patients to me all the time that he, he identified nutrition could help them but he just didn't have the time to talk about it or or indeed didn't you know perhaps know as much as as, as he would like to have known about nutrition because you know for, for whatever reason um, but he knew it was something that I really enjoyed he could see that the value that that brought to the practice not only from a business point of view because it was you know I was helping to himself to sell food but also from a, a more holistic um, well-being for the animal you know these these patients you know nutrition had such an important role to play in in, in the management of their problem um, and there was someone there to help him do that and uh, you know we worked very very well together as a team with regard to that and so it, it was it was something that only did I feel it, feel it was a really interesting subject and I, and I still do I still love nutrition um, but it was there was a real opportunity there it was, it was something that was really needed in my practice um, and I could see that I could really bring something to the table um, whereas I think you know sometimes you might have a really keen, keen interest in something but are you able going to be able to use that interest and certainly with nutrition I felt that I, that I could. I still you know and I think that's really important that kind of like real sort of that that teamwork you spoke about that kind of you know making sure that we're drawing on on everyone's skills across the across the different people within the practice across vets and nurses. I think one of, you know, there's still, and I'm sure you are very aware of this, I still think there are definite barriers, um, you know, uh, that are, are, are in the way of kind of um, that discussion about nutrition. And one of the, the things that, and I don't know if you would agree with this, that potentially how how do we navigate the problem where, you know, the, the nutritional advice and the nutritional um, consult that you're talking about, very much the focus is, um the pet and improving the health and well-being of the pet whether that is um you know a day-to-day diet or whether that's a prescription diet how do you break down that barrier of well hold on is this not just an opportunity to sell something else particularly when you're working for a a, a large pet uh, food company how do you approach that barrier where there's this attitude that maybe it's just another sales pitch, it's just another opportunity for them to sell something to me at the practice? Yeah, and um, it's, it's, that's a really good point you raised there because it is a, it's a huge challenge for us. And I know it's a huge challenge for people in practice. Um, and it's something we get asked about a lot. And we, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to people about how to recommend something in such a way that you know, not only is the owner going to listen to them, but that they don't feel compromised. So I think a big part of my job is you know, making sure people in practice truly do understand how important nutrition is so that when they come to recommending it, I think I think the biggest barrier to any recommendation, whatever it is, is the confidence with which it is delivered. And if you're trying to recommend something that you don't really feel very confident in, or you don't really understand why I'm recommending this diet, you know, a client is going to pick up on that. Whereas if you can absolutely, you know, this is what I recommend, this is what I want you to try, you know, come back and see me and it said it said it in such a way of you know why on earth would you not want to take this you know I often say to people in practice you know when when when, you know if we we see a patient that needs I don't know a course of antibiotics for example you know we don't say to to that owner or the vet doesn't say to that owner well 
you know, he ought to have a course of antibiotics. What do you think? Do you want, do you want to take those or do you not want to take those? You know, we say your dog is going home on a course of antibiotics. Here you go. And it's about having that same same confidence to say, you're going to send your dog home on this diet and this is why. Um, then we'll see you again in a few weeks. Let me know how you're getting on. But it's it's just that confidence and delivery because I think as soon as we, when we recommend anything, as soon as we falter, as soon as we um and are and, well, you could do this or you could do that, immediately an owner picks up on it and questions well how important is this you know if you're kind of I'm you're telling me you know I could do this or I could do that um so I I really think that is probably the 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 biggest thing and and my job is to to make people who are recommending nutrition feel as comfortable and confident as they can about it um by making sure that they have the knowledge that they need so what so how so how do you go about that then is that really is that just through the training that you provide or and through conversations you're having with veterinary professionals what what's what's your part to play in that how do you deliver that that knowledge well usually yeah usually I identify exactly what it is that the barrier is and of course that will vary tremendously from one person to another or one practice to another um and you know yeah yeah making sure that they have got the the tools they need whether that's the, the confidence because of understanding the food which usually is just a question of spending some time with someone like myself or their local territory manager to really understand um what the diet has to offer making sure they understand all the evidence behind it so that, that you know if they're challenged they've got the answers to give owners um you know the, the, the tools and materials that they might need to help an owner feel more comfortable um because actually clients are a lot more interested in nutrition than we think they are and in fact if we were just a little bit more forthcoming in having those conversations we'd often be quite surprised at how 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 interested clients are in nutrition you know we often make an assumption and I I understand why completely we make an assumption that the client will just think I'm trying to sell them something but actually we know that you know 90% plus of clients really want their veterinary healthcare team to recommend nutrition to them in some shape or form or another and they're actually quite disappointed that we don't do it so um actually a lot of the time there is an interest there we've just got to ask the question and have the conversation mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time we don't yeah that's one of the key things I think is just if you don't ask the question you're not going to get any answer yeah um you know you can't expect people to come to you with information I think you're you're absolutely right um and I think that's one of the things we spoke about this you know um one of the sad things actually and I, I maybe you felt this one of the sad things about us losing that kind of uh, preventative health regular consult over the last year and a half is that actually there's less and less opportunity to have these conversations because we're not having that kind of more regular sort of um less firefighty uh interaction with clients yeah. it's all just we're, we're just it's all just problem solving and firefighting just now and there's maybe not that time to maybe sit down and have these conversations, which is a shame because that was part of that kind of relationship building, whether it was through, you know, annual vaccinations and, and all that kind of stuff. There's maybe not as much opportunities to sort of ask these questions. Do you do you find um do you find that there is there's um there's some skepticism that comes along with potentially working for um uh, not just a large you know f- uh, pet food manufacturer but a but working for kind of a larger organization do you feel that 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 comes with its own challenges because of sort of people's um attitudes towards larger organizations generally yes i think i think that probably do you mean professionally or do you mean from a client's point of view I th- well um probably more from a client's point of view i wonder if there's that kind of 
Um, and again, it's probably fueled by the internet, that kind of idea that the big organizations have somehow got it in for us in some sort of bizarre yeah, way. Do you know yes, what I mean? Yeah. Yes. Well, well, it's interesting you say that because I, I met someone walking my dog only this morning um, and mm-hmm. we you know, started chatting about this that, and the other and, and, and it came out what, what I do for a living. And, and she'd already made quite a lot of um, comments about feeling like her vet was trying to rip her off and feeling her vet was trying to sell her stuff she mm. didn't need. And then God, I stepped in and told who I worked for and, you know, and she knew the company and, um, uh, and, 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 you know, I could just see a little bit, a bit of skepticism. And, and, and I was trying to explain to her, so at the end of the day, I don't, you know, I don't care if you're, um, I disagreed with how she was feeding her pet, let's put it that way. She wasn't feeding a dog away that I, I, I think is a good idea. She's a raw feeder. And um, and I said, look, I don't care whether, you, whether it's a Hills food or whatever, but so this isn't about me trying to flog food to you. I'm, I'm just telling you now, because you've asked me, because you did ask me, telling you now the, the concerns I have about your choice of feeding. And, um, you know, I, I just want you to be safe and I want your dog to be safe and I want your kids to be safe. Um, so don't buy Hills food. In fact, if you don't, it doesn't make you comfortable, but, you know, let's, let's look at what the alternatives are. And I think then she... You know, she felt a bit a bit more comfortable because it wasn't about me just trying to sell something to her. But but you're absolutely right. You you, you do you do get that, and I think that's another reason why so many of these smaller kind of boutiquey brands are are you know quite popular at the moment because they do kind of almost lead the consumer to believe that that, that someone's granny's cooking it in her kitchen and. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's how it's that's how it's made. My my nan makes it. <laughs> you know, like. I literally love that. Listen, maybe Fiona, we could go into business together. My nan makes it. dot com. Yeah. Um, let's not tell Hills. Um, <laughs> you've got to dress as a nonna though and be our uh, be our granny. Okay. <laughs> I can see you now. A, a headscarf. Yes. Definitely. I can. <laughs> In the d- deepest, darkest Italy, right? Anyway, so, but I, do you know, it was funny. I, I, but I, I, the reason I asked you about that is because, I, again, I had a very similar comment. So I was, I was, I'm leaving one of my uh, clinical roles and I'd emailed a client to say I'm, I'm leaving. And I didn't really tell her, I didn't go into the details of why, but, but she emailed me back and she and, and, and almost was kind of presuming the reasons that I decided to leave. She said, yes, it must be very difficult now with the corporatization of your, of the veterinary world and everything. And I was like, well, not, I didn't say that, but okay. But, you know, but, 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 but what I mean is it's that similar thing where actually, you know, when people work out that actually every vet practice is owned by like literally one organization, suddenly their attitude changes. And I suppose that's what I was meaning. I think, you're right. I think that kind of, um, you know, gone are the days where everything is individual and boutique. But actually, I wonder whether as the veterinary world has moved into the, you know, this much bigger sphere, um, there is then that kind of like, oh, well, no, I want to go back to the, you know, my nan on the corner, you know, stirring a pot of dog food or whatever. Um, <laughs> but So, you know, yeah. I, I, it's funny, isn't it? Because attitudes kind of do shift a bit. But I think one of the thing, but one yeah. of the key things I wanted to say, and, and I hope that's kind of what you were trying to say is, and I say this to people all the time, it doesn't matter who the vet practice that I'm, I work for is owned by actually, because when it comes down to you having that conversation with someone in the park, you teaching people about dog food, me having an interaction with a client, I'm I'm having a very honest interaction about what I am truly recommending based on my education. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that 
the vet practice I'm owned by uh, work for is owned by Mars or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So yes, we're 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 exactly, so we're owned. Yes. We work for bigger companies, but it doesn't mean that we're robots who are out just to sell you X, Y, and Z. I think, and it must be the same for all these amazing people that you work with at Hills, and certainly that's been our experience is that they're just trying to make good recommendations based on science and based on education. And, and you're very educated in that area. Would you, you know, I think you would, you would agree. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and making good informed choices, you know, that are, that we know their animals are going to benefit from. And, you know, of course I'd love it to be a Hills product that people would choose, but actually, you know, if it's not, that's fine. As long as it's something good and it's something that's safe, um, because you know, all the anyone who oh, I do engage with from a consumer point of view, they're always the owners who want the very best for their animal. I mean, I mean the, 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 this person said to me this morning, "I did it because I really believed I was doing the very best for my dog." And I said, I, "I don't doubt that for one second. I really don't. I can tell by the short interaction we had, you loved your dogs like nothing else." So, I, I get that, but um, actually, I don't. I don't think you are doing the best, and this is why, and this is what I'd suggest you do, kind of thing um but yeah it's a real challenge and I think and I think you're right as well because um of the whole you know when people do find out that their practice isn't perhaps as independent as they'd like it to be you know that it does sometimes change perceptions and particularly at the moment because we're all being very much advised to shop local as it were aren't we so people are looking for that more local but actually that you know that isn't that isn't the way it works and actually lots lots of places that people think are local in fact are not are they somewhere in the background there's you know, there's a much bigger organisation um, behind them. But actually, it's the people who work there, you know, you know, they're still the great people that have always been. Exactly. <laughs> so. no, ex- exactly. I think that's really important. I think also, yeah, it's, it's, it's again, just about the fact that I really like that point. I, 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 you know, the majority of owners that I deal with have absolutely the best intentions and in what they're doing, the, 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 the things that they end up the decisions they make may all may not end up always being the best ones for the pet but they're not doing it because they want their animal to be unwell or uh, you know it's just they're they're it's in some way misguided and I think I always say that to people as well you know in situations where you know particularly we've had things go wrong and and uh, you know dealing with complaints one of the things that I always kind of come back to is well I mean honestly as as a human being regardless of me being a veterinary surgeon or whatever else we would never have wanted this outcome for your pet, you know, and, and X, Y, and Z has happened. And obviously, you know, the situation is not as, as we would have wanted, but we would never have wished for something bad. You know what I mean? Because we're fundamentally... Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's better saying that, doesn't it? Because, you know, we get, you know, particularly when we're dealing with owners who are upset and emotional, and understandably so, I think actually just saying something as simple as that is, you know probably really just calms things down a bit and makes people stop and go god no of course you wouldn't well, you but, 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 but you're right of, of course <laughs> you wouldn't but I think yeah in the moment when people are are, are emotional then it, it's maybe it actually is probably worth pointing out now I don't want to drag you down a rabbit hole of controversy um but you did you brought it up <laughs> but you um so I, I, and I, I'm being guided by you so you were let's go back to the conversation in the park um so the owner was uh feeding a raw diet and I I'm really interested genuinely interested always and um, because this comes up all the time and I must admit I kind of skirt around the issue because I don't want to I just don't want to get involved in that chat like I'm like oh yeah. no I don't just whatever <laughs> do I'm just going to pretend I didn't hear it um 
So genuinely, just from a, a very sort of matter of fact point of view, maybe then you could help give us some tools about what your reaction would be to someone saying, well, actually, I'm raw feeding uh, my dog. OK, well, I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say is I, I never give my opinion unless they ask me for it. Just because I feel okay, I feel okay. I just don't want to cross that line, you know, particularly yeah. when it's I'm not in the workplace and I think, God, you know, just met this person who's really nice. and <laughs> I don't want to feel like I'm telling, you know, hoisting my opinion. She did ask me. And um, and I would say to her, I can give you a really long version. I can give you a, a short version. The short version is there is no evidence, no evidence at all to say that there is any health benefit attached to what you have chosen to do for your pet. So that's the first thing I say. And the second thing I say is, however, there is a wealth, a wealth of evidence, published evidence to show the dangers associated with what you're doing, the dangers to your dog, to the um, and all the, and the, the people who live near your dog and around your dog. And if you've got children or elderly relatives or immunocompromised friends, actually it's it potentially could be quite dangerous to do so and also you know I think you know if you're taking your dog into public places and you know it's potentially shedding pathogens that then other dogs are going to come into contact with and pick up um you know and, and she was really shocked when I told her all this she just had no idea at all um so you know that that, that and, and then if they want to have a wider conversation about it then then yes we will about you know uh, you know in, in a bit more detail um because you know, she because she was buying, you know, her what she thought was her meat responsibly, and do you know, but but it, it just just really simple things. You know, so I said to her, you know, would you would you eat a, a piece of raw chicken? Or if your dog had a bit of raw chicken um, and was walking around the house with it, and you know, dropping it on the carpet and rubbing its face on your furniture, and all, all those little things, you know. Would would you think that was hygienic? Would you, would you take a bit of chicken out of your fridge and rub it all over your worktops and then just leave it there? Of course you wouldn't. But that's what your dog is doing every time he rubs his face all over your chairs. Not to mention, you know, if he's shedding pathogens when he goes to the toilet and, and just just you know stuff like. That. I feel like I feel like yeah. I've rambled a bit there. So not not. No no no. Actually, <laughs> I, I'm thinking about no no because I actually I've never again. It was so funny when Michael. <laughs> you've got such a way with words. I said the same thing to Michael when he came on because he was talking about actually let's not he was he, he anyway he was t- talking about something to do with animal carcasses <laughs> anyway um but he but actually I've you know when I, I I cook with my young children so I I do let them help me make fajitas hey, Karen because yeah. that's all we eat um yes. and um so they all but they so they always chop the peppers um and they love doing that but I never let them touch the raw chicken because I mean, you just freak out. Like, I mean, it's kind of conditioned into mm. us. Like, I th- this obsession with particularly raw meat and raw chicken. So, no, I think I've never heard it described in that way about the dog just kind of rubbing <laughs> the raw chicken all over the house. You know, it's like when your dog dog eats something like that. They, you know, they roll on the carpet, they rub their face on the floor, don't they? Then they go. And, well, my dog goes and sits on the couch and. You just think it's that little trick. It's like those COVID adverts you see at the moment, where you see someone touching a hat, and you see it all the. And it's it's kind of, it's kind of like that. You have to kind of imagine it in your mind's eye that this little trail of of pathogens. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, that was very descriptive. Thank that will definitely be helpful to people. So apart from um, so the the raw feeding thing is obviously a definitely a, a trend. You know, there's been a change. Yes. I think tangibly over the last sort of 10 years as far as attitudes and 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 um uh particularly actually in the 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 brachycephalic so you know we see a lot of 
uh, Frenchies now that are, are raw fed. You know, oh, that, be, yeah, that's, do you know, that's so funny. That I, yes. And I don't know whether that be, yes. it becomes then like a breed thing, you know, so you, you it almost becomes like a, because you know what, because I think sometimes breeds kind of go off in their own direction and have very specific ideas about their breed and what their breed yes, needs and different absolutely. things. So no, I definitely, I definitely have um, seen that. Can you think of any other, or are there any other sort of um, attitudes or trends with pet nutrition that you think have kind of changed for the good or the bad, you know, over the last, um, you know, 10 years? Well, I, I guess I'd have to flag at the moment grain-free feeding right. as, a, as, as, a, as a massive trend and this um, misguided belief that, you know, grains are bad for animals and are cheap fillers. I always get, you know, always get the phrase cheap fillers um, banded around when, you know, actually, you know, not only do we know that both dogs and cats um, when grains are processed properly and cooked are are you know easy easily digested by these animals but also have a, a wealth of of, um, of nutrition within them and it's not just about calories you know they you know full of vitamins minerals you know specific fats for example um but there, there's this belief that they're bad for animals and that you know they cause sensitivities yes of course animals can get sensitivities to grains but actually you know animals getting dietary sensitivities as i'm sure you you know is actually extremely unusual and in fact more often than not when we do see a sensitivity to something in an animal's diet it's normally to the to the meat within their diet um so there's this huge belief that that grains are bad however what i am kind of interested to see what what's going to happen over the next few years is there's also a huge awareness in the human population about the benefits of fiber to do with your microbiome so mm. you know you know people are becoming very very aware of that and the benefits of that and of course we really rely on fiber usually from grains to to do all those things for us as people um so i do wonder if the if as that gradually seeps into people's mindset more people will start to realize actually by avoiding grains they're really missing out on some of the really great um attributes mm. of them just from a you know a, a, a bacterial point of view um in mm. the GI tract. so yeah yeah watch this space you know yeah we'll have to wait and see, but. i think you know the microbiome is a funny thing because i think initially i was like you know it was i i was like oh, i was just one of those things where like it's a sexy word and people just want to <laughs> talk about the microbiome but actually when you drill down it's it's absolutely incredible like i think the you know the 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 far-reaching implications health benefits and and, and negative uh, health benefits to the microbiome disturbing the microbiome changing the microbiome is yeah, absolutely mind-blowing isn't it it's incredible really and i think yeah. that so i think very much watch this space because i think we there's so much we don't understand um and there's so much more i think potential for good um it, it, you know in that sort of area of science so no i i think it's absolutely um i think it's absolutely um incredible i think one of the things that ha has to has a lot to answer for across the board as far as the pressures that we're under in the veterinary industry is the internet and social media and <laughs> uh you know where I'm going with this and then and I think you know very specifically not only do we all get you know you know vet and nurse bashed um but actually also nutrition is almost like it takes a different form out there in the world of the internet um as far as 
information, opinions, very, very strong opinions about lots of different things. Is that something that you just ignore or do you, or, or, yeah, yeah, okay, they're good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a short answer. As much as I, as I can, Scott, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a bit of an old bird, dinosaur margarine, I'm I'm known locally as. Um, in my attitude, my attitude to, all, to all things digital, including social media, um, and, okay. and and you know, don't get me wrong in the statement I'm about to make because I do understand that that there are huge benefits to social media and and you know the world we live in. However, I also truly believe that is the worst thing that ever happened to humanity. <laughs> um, oh yeah. Because I mean, it could well be. I re- I really do. I really do. And actually, although I do engage with things like um, Facebook, for example, because I have to with my job. I actually don't don't engage with it at all personally. It, you know, I, I just I just refuse to go there. Um, and I, you know, don't get me wrong. I have lots of friends who engage with it and thoroughly enjoy it, and, and good for them. That's brilliant. But um, I just I just I, the whole social media thing. Um, I I just tend to back away from. Um, yeah. Just because I just I, 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 apart from anything else, I just don't want it to rule my life, and it does seem to rule an awful lot of people's lives. You know, I don't mm. want to be one of these people who spends their entire life looking at a device. Yeah. I th- I think it's it's really yeah it's it's difficult isn't it because we've said you know from a from a business point of view we obviously engage and we see the benefit um and and so many positives yeah exactly yeah no no exactly and so many benefits come out of it but I think it's it particularly when it comes to um public public sort of voicing and discussion of opinion on the veterinary profession on nutrition you, you know ideas towards raw feeding all these sorts of things it just really opens up this whole cavern of usually probably not that nice interaction about these sorts of things and I think that's that's my kind of overarching feeling is that it's I think it's fine for people to have different opinions I think it's fine for people to debate different things um but equally I think that it's when it starts to become quite nasty Um, yeah it's all the um, that goes with it yeah I just wish wish people could be a bit kinder to one another even though they may not be looking you in the eye I just you know I just wish people would be a bit kinder um yeah yeah, it's it's it, 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 it's a trouble. It's such an anonymous environment, though, isn't it? That people, you yeah. know, do think they can say. Well, I mean, as we've been, you know, with recent events online and trolling and stuff, you know, people seem to think that they, it's like they're not talking to a person almost, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's the. But I mean, I, sorry, I don't want to go really off topic, but I mean, that's for me. Like, I, I think it's it's not. It's it's obviously not unique to the veterinary profession. I mean, my God, we we're just off the back of you know England not you know winning the, exactly, the final yes. the, exactly. I, I don't know if that's what you were referring it to it was what I, I was referring to yeah, yeah. and I, was, I just yeah. we've actually we've actually we've we haven't talked about this yet and I, and I think you know it's still in the news today quite rightly and I think that um it just absolutely honestly I can't even be, it breaks my heart so hard to 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 imagine that we are still living in a world where the 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 fact that the ball didn't go in the net but you know and then the color of their I know, skin I just it blows my tiny mind it blows my tiny mind I just I really can't fathom that that's what's happening but here we are and we have to remember that the majority are good yes so, yeah you're absolutely um, right we do and that's why it, you know here's another example though I suppose where it has been a good thing because although there was all that horribleness you know so many people have come out and shown their support and said actually these people are the minority so you know I do recognize that it swings both ways so 
Yeah. Um, but I think you're you're right. What do they call you? Dinosaur what? Dinosaur marjoram, just because of my surname. Well, that, when, I, when I say that, I call myself dinosaur marjoram. I imagine that the masses do, because, you know... <laughs> Okay. Well, we won't call you that. We won't call you that. Um, <laughs> there's a few questions that we like to ask um, everyone that comes on the podcast, and I hope that we could ask you those. There's, um, there's, uh, I, I think first of all, you know, we, um, again, you know, you, 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 you have seen sort of uh, a lot of changes uh, throughout your career within the profession, and also, I suppose, um, come into contact with lots of different people. I'm sure through your job, is there, is there anyone that particularly sticks out for you um as far as um a, a veterinary inspiration someone that has inspired you in some way or your career in some way um and if it, you can't think of anyone veterinary it doesn't matter but I, 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 actually I would, I would i would say i would say a couple of people actually and i didn't i had a fear you were gonna ask me this question so i actually did give this some thought because i thought you know it's an important thing i you know i don't want to just make some rubbish up on the spot so I would say I would say more recently, and it's you know um, would be um, Andrew Jeffrey, who's now the chief um, nursing officer at Linnaeus, and I oh, think yeah. someone because she's a veterinary nurse, and you know she's always been a you know a, a, an inspirational veterinary nurse in terms of you know just what she has done for the profession, you know for a long time, um, and you know I think that for her to be in the position she's in now is really inspiring for a lot of nurses. Um, so I definitely would. Would, would say say her um i'd also say um hannah capon from canine arthritis management um i think hannah's absolutely hannah and the whole of her team at can are truly incredible people the 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 the, the time and indeed you know investment that 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 they make you know to do nothing more than support people like us in, a, in the veterinary world who are looking after arthritic pets and arthritic pets and their owners um, you know, I really, I really hope that Cam, you know, continue to do well and, and really get more recognition for the incredible work they do. And um, I, whether Hannah hears this or not, I, I, you know, I hope someone tells her because I'm, you know, she really, I, I think she really is inspiring and I don't think she quite realises um, how inspiring she is. So um, go Hannah, go Cam, that's what I, I'll say there. That's why I love asking that question because actually we get so many brilliant answers and actually it's it's to do with people that some particularly people that just don't even wouldn't even realize that they had inspired someone in some sort of in some sort of way and they're I think again at just highlighting that there are so many people that are doing such important work that you know it doesn't always get you know you don't always realize that the impact of what they're what they're doing so no that's a, a great answer I love that I would also add if I if I may if I may you know without singling any one individual out you know I we have we have our nurse awards every year and every year I, I get to, to to read the the submitted entries and and you know genuinely you know when I see there, there are some nurses out there just doing their job in inverted commas but actually not just doing their job really going the extra mile I, you know I, find, I genuinely find that really inspiring and you know you think oh god maybe I should just go back and be a nurse again um uh, yeah I just think it's incredible so actually it doesn't have to be anyone individual individual it can just be great nurses doing a great job um particularly this year and what's been a really difficult environment so mm -hmm. yeah well done to them. and I think that's so important and, and we and we love that and we love the 
uh, we've enjoyed so much giving so many amazing nurses a, 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 a even just a small platform to kind of talk about just the amazing things they're doing and I think that's definitely one of the take homes for me uh, recording this over the last year has been those nurses have just been you know superstars so no I, I couldn't I, I couldn't agree I couldn't agree more um so one of the things that we've been asking um which is a, a newer question I, I suppose it, it it can be well it, and it can be interpreted in lots of different ways and actually it's caused a bit of like it's caused a bit of a meltdown with some people as far oh, as how, they, how they're answering it I, I, I'm, so, I'm bracing myself here I'm gripping the side of the <laughs> So the 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 question is the question is what do you want to be when you grow up? And I think the way that you can answer that is twofold. Either I suppose it's it's what's next for you and where do you see yourself going and being. Um but also um when I answered it I think you know I just really if if I had my time again and I had no barriers to what I wanted to do in my life, you know, I would have been Taylor Swift. But that so that you can answer in two those two different <laughs> Those are the two options for how you answer that question. <laughs> so maybe what's next? Let's go with that. Oh, I much prefer the other one. <laughs> oh, we'll answer that then. Answer that then, yeah. Um, do, do you know what's next? I'm, I'm, and it's funny because people have asked me that all through my life, particularly since going into a corporate environment. You know, people always ask you that. You're appraisal every year. What's next? What do you want to do next? What are your career aspirations? And what I would say to that is, you know, I'm genuinely really happy doing the job I do. I really mean that. Um, mm. and, and if I was really thinking about anything significant, what's next? It would be retirement. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. Um, do you know... I, I want I, to be retired yeah but listen I, I really <laughs> I, do you know I think that's actually such a good answer for so many reasons I think we're so conditioned in this profession to not just it's always what next I think yeah. we're all very driven and I think you're absolutely right what about just doing this yeah and, <laughs> and you know that has been my answer so many times they're like well, what don't you want to do this don't you want to move into management and I'm like no I don't no. Why, why can't you just let me do what I do hopefully do it well you know I hope like to think I do it well um and just let me be happy doing this please why do why do we have to be chasing the next promotion or you know so that absolutely is 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 how I would feel it's a very good answer and, and I, do you know and yeah I think that's a yeah and good yeah let's just do that let's just do this because this is really enjoyable <laughs> Why just leave me alone? <laughs> if I had my time again and money was no object, I'd have gone to art school, which I nearly did, and then I would have opened my Angelica Tesson. There you go. Oh, <laughs> oh that sounds I nice. I love that. Do you know we've we've had more than one person who was going to almost go to art school? Nat Scroggy, she was an artist as well, wasn't mm -hmm. she? Um so <laughs> oh yeah, art school and delicatessen. That sounds really good. That sounds really good. Well, I and actually I you know, I think I probably would have gone to drama school and opened a gin bar, you know. So I think <laughs> And and then just had your recording on the side. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> so oh I love that answer. I love that. Um I've lost track now. That was a good answer. Where there's I feel there's another question, Karen. What else do I normally <laughs> Oh yeah. So truly though, I think um in all honesty, I think if you knowing what you know about your career obviously now and 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 mm -hmm. enjoying it as you said you have done which is great. If you were to go back to that moment where you you were filling in that form to go to nursing, you know, college university, would you still fill out that form? Would you still do that again? Oh god, absolutely I would, yeah. I absolutely yeah. would. And um 
yeah, I have no regrets at all about um, about being a veterinary nurse. And it, it was a job that I really, really loved. Um, uh, you know, no two days were the same. I worked with incredible people. I really felt like I made a difference. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I, I loved it, definitely. And if you were to, with all your wisdom, if you were to <laughs> give one piece of advice to vets and vet nurses listening, um, maybe about the kind of, the things that helped you kind of nav- navigate your career what what piece of advice would that be oh goodness well that's a bit that's more of a tricky one to answer like I guess you know it's at the risk of sounding really corny and really cheesy is just to believe you know believe in, in what you're doing and know how valuable you are and know that you every day make a difference and I that that really does sound cheesy now I've said it out loud but yeah. you know it really is it really is true and, um, you know, the number of times when I go into practice and I'll say to someone, oh, um, are you are you one of the vets here? And the answer I almost always would get from a nurse would be, no, I'm just a nurse. Not, no, I'm a nurse. No, I'm just a nurse. I, I always say to them, not just a nurse. But every bit as important as every other cog in the wheel of this practice. So, um, yeah, just I'd like people to, 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 to recognise that more about themselves or indeed about their colleagues if they don't recognise that already. Um, but I don't no, I don't I don't think there probably is one, you know, one really constructive bit of, <laughs> bit of advice, I guess, to be honest with you. No. But but, <laughs> but but I think knowing just that well, I take from that just about you know, knowing your value and, and I that's come up before that, not just a nurse, you know, that's that's uh as much as that definitely is changing, that's still you know, or even just you know, I actually do you know even a receptionist saying I'm just a receptionist yeah. and, and the answer is the same well you're not just anything you are a receptionist that if you were not here this place would go to yeah ruin completely god receptionists <laughs> so... are so so important I mean they're the first port of call aren't they you know yeah. you know incredibly incredibly important um yeah you know, you know so there's not just anything it just you are what you are and it's different from other people but it doesn't mean it's any less or more it's just different you know yeah. and I think so I, I mean I'm a big you know I'm I'm definitely an anti-hierarchical you know that's something that I'm very passionate about I think I, I find that really infuriating and um, I know we have to have hierarchy in our profession and but I certainly think that that shouldn't come with bad attitudes you know or or, yeah. or treating people differently because they are mm-hmm. x y and z positions so no I couldn't agree more okay well, listen. Thank you so much for chatting today. Um, that was brilliant, and um, what a what a, a joy to have your you, not just the the great sort of nuggets about uh, nutrition, but just um, your overall um wisdom. So, thank you very much for chatting. <laughs> thank you chatting so much. Today. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> Moving into our clinical segment now, um, and we are really, really um, uh, thrilled uh, uh, again for Hills uh, and their support of this podcast and our lower urinary tract disease course. We are extremely uh, grateful to them. Okay, everyone. So um, in our clinical segment this week, we're going to start a bit of a discussion uh, about urolithiasis. Um, And in general, urolithiasis is really just a term that we use to talk about stones anywhere within the urinary tract of, of dogs and cats. Um, 
And those stones can form for multiple different reasons. So we can see stones forming because of, you know, familial congenital issues um, or acquired problems. And that maybe uh, have, you know, some input, environmental input, maybe some dietary input. Um, but b basically multifactorial. So the reason that stones form are very, very varied. Some of those things that we can we can control and some of those things we're not going to be able to uh, control. As far as what we see um, in our patients with uh, urolithiasis, their clinical signs will vary quite a bit. So, um, but uh, tend to f follow a kind of a relatively standardized format. So we're going to see stranguria, hematuria, dysuria, polacuria, pain, uh, potentially lethargy. So most of the signs that we're going to see with most of the stones or uroliths within the urinary tract are going to be to do with how those stones affect our patient's ability to pee. Um, but stones that are higher up in the urinary tract, so stones that are um, in the kidneys or, or in the ureters, may not affect urination, but may cause lethargy and pain, uh, for instance. So again, there can be some uh, variability. Generally, um, when we are making a diagnosis of uroliths, we are using um, our history, our clinical signs, but actually, um, we're relying on imaging, uh, 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 you know, ultrasound uh, and uh, radiography to look uh, for these abnormalities. Now, n as we know, no imaging modality is perfect. Ultrasound is really good for looking for uroliths, but um, it's impossible to image the whole of the urogenital tract, particularly in, in male dogs, for instance. Um, radiography is good, but not all stones will show up on a radiograph. In fact, most stones that are less than two millimeters in diameter will, will never show up. But there are some stones that obviously are more prone to showing up in radiographs um, than others. So none of these things are going to be perfect. We can use contrast studies, so we can introduce contrast into the, um, the urinary tract, um, whether that's maybe a, a retrograde urethrogram for instance um, and try and highlight stones in, in that way. There are st some stones actually that we will even be able to palpate within the urinary tract so um, you know you can sometimes I don't know if you've ever palpated a bladder that's full of urolis and it just feels like a bag of stones. Rectal palpation is really important um, uh, we can sometimes aid our uh, you know, when we're trying to um, relieve an obstruction within the, ure uh, the urethra, rectal palpation can be helpful uh, as far as that's concerned. But also you, you may even be able to palpate uh, stones within the part of the urethra that you can feel uh, per rectum. Um, so imaging is really important. Urinalysis is going to be important. We'll talk a bit more about that and um, potentially a culture of the urine as well. Um, and then things like serum biochemistry and hematology to look for potentially other uh, reasons for illness or stone formation. A good example of that would be that uh, dogs with portosystemic shunts will form urate uroliths um, and certainly their biochemistry and hematology may not be completely normal and that is going to take you off down a, a completely different sort of direction. 
One of the things that people kind of, I suppose, stress a bit about is the prediction of composition. There's a massive drive now for us to be predicting the composition of stones and actually doing all we can to promote dissolving rather than necessarily surgically removing all of these stones immediately. And so predicting the composition prior to removal um, may help with that therapeutic plan. Other examples of why sort of prediction of composition might be useful would be, for instance, if you have a cysteine stone, then actually we think that castrating male dogs at the time of maybe removing their cysteine stone is going to help in the uh, prevention of reformation of that stone. So knowing it was cysteine would be a good would be a good idea. Really, really important that we do not rely on crystal urea to predict composition. Looking at crystals and saying, well, if there's such and such crystal there, then that must mean that the stone is made up of this, is very insensitive and very, very unreliable. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. Um, <clears throat> the crystals associated with the actual stone um, actually often will disappear uh, from the urine. And when there's an actual stone in the bladder, um, actually, it's more thermodynamically suitable. I don't know if I said that right, but whatever, something. Um, it's actually easier for the crystals to deposit onto the stone rather than hanging about in the urine. So actually, the crystals may disappear. And then the crystals that you get in the urine may actually be different from the stone, the actual stone composition. So really we're using other factors such as radiography and the, and the, the appearance and um, radiograph appear, uh, radiographic appearance of the stones, um, breed, gender, urine pH. They're actually going to be much more reliable ways potentially of um, predicting what the stone uh, composition uh, uh, actually is. So not relying uh, fundamentally on crystal crystal urea when it comes to when you know playing a numbers game ultimately the majority of stones that you're going to be seeing in dogs and cats are either going to be calcium oxalate or struvite um, and in the numbers vary a little bit but ultimately in most of the studies that's that's going to be the predominant stone types that we're that we're seeing um, and so we will see urate we will see cysteine but but less commonly it was interesting, actually, um, in a recent study in cats, um, there was it was demonstrated that there was an increase in prevalence of struvite in cats. So still struvite and calcium oxalate being the most common, um, but an in increase in the prevalence of struvite. And that's interesting because actually calcium oxalate calcium oxalate are uh, you can't dissolve but struvite you can for instance and and so it is important just to keep uh to keep that in mind and certainly not just presume because it's a cat that it must absolutely have calcium oxalate uh, stones okay so kind of going back to the radiographic appearance um again the radio opacity the the size and shape um indeed can be correlated to composition. So that can help a little bit. Um, so, you know, calcium oxalate, calcium phosphate, you're going to see them pretty much most of the time. 
Struvite are not quite as bright as those calcium oxalate on radiographs, but you will see them. And then cysteine, urate and xanthine are not so easy to see radiographically. But important to remember that uh, once stones get big enough, you're going to probably see most of them uh, with a radiograph. And once stones get small enough, so when they're really, really tiny, you're probably not going to see any of them, regardless of the of the composition. Um, and again, remember that stones can uh, actually vary as far as they can be made up of uh, of different uh, things. They're not often, uh, you know, they're not always made up of just one thing uh, from start to finish. We mentioned crystal urea before, sort of just being aware that crystal, crystal urea is really not a good way of predicting stone composition. It's really important also just to mention that actually crystal urea is not necessarily abnormal. So it's not just because you have crystals in your urine. So you look at a urine sample in-house and there's crystals there. That doesn't mean that the dog or cat has an abnormality. Struvite, amorphous phosphate, some oxalate crystals are actually commonly seen in the urine of very healthy animals. So that isn't a reason to necessarily do anything or be strongly abnormal in any way. Seeing urate, cysteine, or large quantities of calcium oxalate probably is abnormal. So if you're seeing lots of those crystals, then you may want to think about why that, that would be. Really important to remember that crystals form in supersaturated urine. So in very, very concentrated urine, uh, you, you may well see crystals. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's abnormal. Um, and remember actually that, that, that temperature will affect things as well. So if you... Um, if you're refrigerating a, a urine sample, always let it come back to room temperature before you do any sort of under the microscope um, analysis. So always rewarm, not actively, but just to room temperature a sample um, before analysis because refrigeration can promote crystal formation. Um, and, and these are simple things, but actually, um, you know, really important uh, steps as far as not uh, getting taken off down the garden path. <clears throat> As we said, um, calcium oxalate um, are relatively common, uh, found in loads and loads of different dog breeds, but 50% have been identified in the following six breeds. So miniature schnauzers, shih tzus, Yorkshire terriers, uh, chihuahuas, bichon, and Maltese. So although you can literally find this in any breed, uh, certainly there is potentially um, some breeds that are overrepresented for that. And another perfect breed example of when breed is kind of important with stones is obviously things like the Dalmatian and urate uh, stones. Uh, other examples would be the English Bulldog uh, who's prone to urate and cysteine um, but Dalmatians really really are the poster child of the urate stone and we need to use all of this information um, to put uh, our clinical picture together. Massive thank you again to Fiona, uh, to the amazing Hills Pet Nutrition for their support of this podcast and their lower urinary tract disease course. Um, please do check that out. Massive thank you to all of you for listening. We appreciate your support hugely. Do head over to our social media platforms. Give us a like, follow and share. We uh, love interacting over there with lots of good clinical content too. 
Do head over to our website at www.vtx-cbd.com for more information about what VTX do. Thank you again, and we will see you next week. Mm -hmm.